0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and I know we've been crazy behind. We've got a bunch of podcasts in the can, ready to go. We just have to cut them up. So, I apologize. I know we've been way behind in this however we now have a great episode with lee percy his early work includes uh boys don't cry among many other amazing films, and he's going to talk to us about Cutting the Mountain Between Us, which is a great new film that just came out, and I would highly recommend you go check it out. In the meantime, if you have any questions or you want to ask us anything, make sure to get us on Twitter at AOTG Network or on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. So with all that said, here's my interview with Lee Percy about The Mountain Between Us. To start off, how did you get involved with this film?
1: They reached out to me, they were looking for, um, an editor who maybe was, uh, I don't know, had a little bit. Different resume than uh, some of the people that were being sent to them, and uh, them being the producer Fred Berger and and more specifically Hani. And then Hani and I had a Skype. I was in New York, he was in LA, and we had a Skype and we just immediately uh, connected. I think I cut, he said, four of his hundred favorite movies. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we just immediately uh, connected. He's made, I think, five movies, three of which I think are fantastic. So, uh, we had a lot to talk about there, and then we immediately got into the details of the screenplay, and he was in the process of trying to um, figure out how the, the the ending, you know, they were in, in the middle of a rewrite, and the ending was a an issue that he was wrestling with, and we, like, got right into the weeds uh, right away about, you know, how the ending could go, and, and, you know, because the film becomes a love story at the end, you know, how you know, how do you approach a relationship? And how does a relationship, you know, what are the problems? And, you know, how do you make that dramatic? And, you know, we just really got into a, a detailed discussion about the the film. So it was just kind of like immediately, uh, Hani and I connected and, and and had a creative discussion. So, you know, and then that was that, you know, pretty much. Um, we had one more Skype, but by then, I think he'd, he'd pretty much made up his mind and, and we were just covering the details.
0: Well, you mentioned the, um, the fact that it sort of evolves into a A love story. How did you work with the footage provided to sort of create that nice balance of going from a essentially a disaster survival film transitioning so it has a nice balance into a love story without giving away too much?
1: That was the big, probably the biggest focus uh, in the editing was uh, you know was the developing love story. You have two characters. You have nowhere else to go pretty much for two thirds uh, of the movie. It's um, you know Kate and Idris. Up on a mountain, and there's nothing else. To, there's no cutaways. There's no other parallel action that you can go to. So you're really working with them, and of course, um, you know they're such remarkable actors that they always give you lots of material to to choose from. But uh, it was it was a challenge to structure the love story, and there was a lot of time and effort that went into that and as you might imagine with editing um you know it's it gets to be like editing a book you, you take out a line you move a scene and then that ripples all the way uh through the film in both directions so it was a careful uh construction of the adventure and of the the life-threatening situation and and the idea that you know what would you do if your life depended on a stranger and then how the you know the part two of that question Is And how would that relationship develop over time if you were the only two people um, on a snowy mountain? So, um, you know, that was really it was a big focus. It was a big challenge, Um, not because they didn't do the work, but because you really had to carefully balance those two things. You had to keep the the struggle for life uh, going. And you also had to see in the course of that struggle for life, the spark begin to uh, ignite and grow that was their love.
0: One of the things I I found when I was uh, researching for this call was that you actually studied acting originally Mm -hmm. and then moved into editing. So I guess looking at this film, we have two pretty amazing actors in the film. But I'm wondering, as, as an actor turned editor, what techniques and ideas did you translate from your acting experience to the editing process?
1: Editing, a lot of editing, of course, is about putting the performance together and being sensitive to what the actors have done in the camera and being sensitive to how um, that can be structured and how different takes can be put together so they all look like they're of a piece, the same emotional flow. Um, You know, performance is sort of the first thing I look at when I get the dailies uh, for a scene. And then as I work with the scene, of course, there are many other elements that are involved in putting a movie together, but I like to go through and make notes uh, on the best acting beats all the way through the scene. And you can't really cut a scene from the best acting beats, but you can cut the scene together and keep in mind that there, you know, anywhere you can get those moments in that really were, were gems in the dailies. You know, I try to use as many of those as I can. Um keeping the flow going, keeping the smoothness of the performance going, keeping the scene building, but the reactions, uh, you know, to sell a screenplay, you have to have a certain amount of dialogue in there so that the reader understands what's going on between the characters. But once you put that screenplay in the hands of actors and you put the actors in front of a camera and the director behind the camera, what goes through the lens uh, is something very different. And then what I have um, in the editing room uh, I try to see what happened on the set. And in a lot of cases, that means you take out you know, some of that dialogue because you don't need to explain things. It's in their eyes. Uh, really good film actors, you know, with a really good film actor, people like Kata and and some of the other ones that I've been lucky enough to work with, you can just read the subtext. I mean, it's there. It's happening. It's it's right in front of you. It's It's on the screen, you know, 40 feet high. So, or, you know, Six inches high these days. If you're watching <laughs> yeah. on a computer or your yeah. iPhone, uh, yeah, it's it's a really it's a you know for me it's a very rewarding um, experience to be working with the actors, even though they they don't see me, I see them.
0: Which it's interesting that you would say that with it's it's in their eyes because there's been situations where I've been cutting something and I find that the delivery of the line sounds good and real, but. When you have it on the person, like if I sit on the person delivering the line, it feels fake. And there's something in Mm -hmm. the visual cue of how they're delivering it that sort of sets me off. And I'm like, that doesn't feel real. So I have to (laughs) rely on a cutaway or something or something to hide it. Um, Have you ever encountered... Oh, yeah. uh, Actors can have like a bad day, like any of us. So what are some of your techniques and tricks and ideas to sort of help improve... Uh, an actor's performance.
1: Yeah, exactly. And They can have a bad day, or they can even just have a moment that doesn't land. So, like you say, it could be just one sentence in in an otherwise good take, but you don't. It doesn't ring true, or it doesn't have uh, the other layers that you need, uh, you know, to convey the meaning for the scene. And certainly, the reaction shot. You know, what's happening with the other actors. And again, going through the dailies and carefully. Picking out the performance moments, you know, sometimes you find just an amazing reaction. Uh, and and the reaction can convey what perhaps is not on the face of the actor who's saying the line. And you can see, you know, they're hurt. The other actor or the other character is hurt or um, sad or surprised. So that even if uh, the person speaking isn't aiming the line exactly right, you can see it land. Uh, in the reaction of the other actors. So that's, you know, that's really number one. You know, number two would be to find a take where it is on the face. Actors don't want to hear me say this, but the number two would be to find a take where it is believable on the face. uh, And maybe even if the line isn't exactly as good as it was in the other take, you can lay that track in and uh, eight times out of 10, it will sync up or you can get it to sync up with a little work with the other picture. Uh, and then lastly, if you have a picture that you buy, but not the, not the performance, you can, you can get it with ADR. You can always go in and post sync it, uh, with the actors. And some actors are just great at post syncing. And, and uh, most actors are really good at post syncing. Let me say that actually, but, uh, some of them really resist it. Some of them really hate it. Um, I, I don't Kate blame Kate Winslet. Them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a weird thing to go back yeah. months later, isn't it? To and, and well, try to and just and to be in the say room the with same them. Line, yeah. yeah,
0: it's just so weird.
1: And to be in the room with them, and and um, you know, you know, being in the room with them, trying to help them find the way to say it. How how, what a struggle it is, even for us. But then you get an actor like Kate Winslet, and she just sails through the ADR. Uh, And it's amazing. It's just, you know, she was doing an American accent in this film and, and, you know, she hit the accent and she hit the meaning. And if we wanted to change a little bit of the performance, she could do that. And if you wanted to have the exact same performance, she could do that. She spent, God, I think she said she spent 20 days doing ADR on the Titanic and she just really learned the ins and outs and she can sail through ADR. Um yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah, lot yeah.
0: of days of ADR. Isn't
1: it? Yeah. Jeez. I, I think there's a there's a there's a she could tell you better, but there's a there's a moment she said where she pulls like a fire axe off the wall and kind of does uh 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 and uh you know I think they did that I don't know, she said sixty times or something Jeez. before.
0: It's, it almost sounds like <laughs> sure. a um a Kubrick experiment to like see how far Doesn't they can it? push yeah. the actors. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're going to do this exactly. 40 times and then see if we like it. Yeah. You talked a bit about the structure uh, of or finding the structure of this film. And when I was reading up on stuff I and I talked to some of the guys at uh, Manhattan at a workshop and we were chatting. And um, what always came up is you seem to have this, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to, like, I guess, enjoyment in searching through for the structure or reworking structures or becoming very invested in making sure that the structure works mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm wondering uh what your pr- approach is to having to restructure a film or even just uh you know tweaking the structure what are what are you looking for to make sure things are working and and what are some of your ideas behind, behind fixing that
1: usually it's an emotional through line so i really try to build the emotional through line and, and a lot of times when people get lost in the editing process, when they get lost in their own movie, um, it's because they've lost the thread, the emotional thread, and they're trying to cling to their idea of what it should be or what it was in the screenplay. Um, you know, a number of times I've said to to directors where I've come in to help them, you know, we're not cutting the screenplay, we're cutting the movie. And, um, it's really a matter of finding the movie and the footage and it's there and it happened on the set and it happened, you know, like I said before, there's the actors on one side of the camera, the director on the other and the camera in between and, and what goes through the lens and is recorded, um, is different. It's not what was on the page. Um, it may not have even been what was in rehearsal or what was you know in the mind of the filmmaker at the moment the camera was rolling. But something happened in front of the camera, you know nine times out of ten, something emotional. And it's really a matter of carefully um, examining the film and seeing where it doesn't work. Where does it fall flat? Where do I lose the thread? Where do I lose interest? And then going back to the footage and saying, what's not in the movie that's in the footage?' And where is that emotional life? And how can we build that emotional through line? And by emotional through line, I mean, you have to be the audience. You have to, as an editor, I believe, experience the film the way the uh, audience would. And so you're trying to lead the audience through the film. I'm trying to lead myself through the film. And I think it's another way that acting has helped me because acting is all about having an emotional response to a character in a situation. And I try to bring that out in myself as I put a scene together as much as I can, you know. And it's a sense of what's dramatic, you know, and there's nobody more self-dramatizing than an actor. (laughs) So I think that just imbues me with a sense of what's dramatic, you know, what's exciting, what uh, really feels emotional. So those are the things I look for. I mean, sometimes a film, on rare occasions, there's a film that's more intellectual and it wants to be a drier, less, Emotional film, but but I would say nine times out of ten, it's really finding the emotional life of the film and how to lead the audience through that from from where you start at the beginning and where you take them at the end.
0: So how do you keep focus? Because you know if I if I if I worked on a film for eight months, I've seen this footage over and over again. I know. And, and so what are your, <laughs> like how do you approach staying fresh with the footage and making sure that you can. Look at it and say, this moment's you know slow, not because I've seen it 10 times or a thousand times, but it's slow because it's not working.
1: You know, that's the hardest thing. And there are a couple of ways. One is seeing it with other people, because when there's other people in the room, you tend to see it through their eyes. And of course, they'll tell you what they did or didn't get out of the, that particular edit of the movie. So it's helpful to see it with an audience or even a few other people in the room. It just puts you uh, into their heads a little bit. You know, and I also try not to watch the same cut, the same version of the film over and over again. So if we are like on a studio film, if you're getting ready for a preview, you know, you may um, you, you have that cut, you watch that cut, you decide that that's what you're going to go with. Then you watch it again in the mix and then maybe you do a quality control on the digital uh, cinema package that's going to be projected in the theater and you know maybe the director wants to watch it once with some friends so i try to limit that and and explain to the to the director and the producers and the studio you know i'm not not showing up for these pre-screenings because i'm you know not doing my job or i'd rather be doing something else but if i start to watch it too many times in the same cut, it stops being plastic in my mind and it starts to solidify. So I really uh, have to be careful about, you know, as long as there's changes uh, in it, then the film will have a new life every time I look at it. But if I were to watch it three times or four times in the same cut, I would stop seeing it as as something as malleable, you know, as I would if the first time I'm seeing a new cut.
0: You sort of, you know, mentioned the previous screenings. So, how do you find, um, you deal with, you know, previous sk- screenings with a, a, f- a fresh audience? Like, how do you, how does that affect you in the editing process?
1: I find them uh, enormously helpful, and, and I think the, the, the screening process uh, is essential for the editing process. You you need the feedback from an audience. Um, we're not making these things to hang in a museum. Um, we're making them because we want people to walk in the door, plunk down you know, a substantial amount of money and, and sit in the theater and watch it or you know, stream it. So I think it's important to hear what an audience has to say. I think it's important to watch it in a room with 250 to 400 people and hear where they laugh and see where they're riveted and see when they get up and go to the bathroom or buy popcorn. Um, and to hear their reactions at the end, you know, the downside of it can be then, you know, they get the numbers, The, the whoever's in charge uh, gets the numbers from the preview audience, and they can use those numbers uh, both to try to convince the filmmaker to make changes that the filmmaker doesn't think are good changes for the movie, and they also can uh, depress the marketing people, you know, who may have been in that preview, but... But you know, with that caveat and taking that risk, uh, for us, I think they're really helpful. You know, I worked for many, many years with a director, Barbet Schroeder. I think we did seven or eight movies together, from *Reversal of Fortune* on. And you know, he always had in his. You know, he started making films in France. He was a progenitor of the French New Wave. And as such, they didn't do screenings. Period. But once he got here and got into the preview process, he would build into his studio contract what they called a filmmaker-only preview, which was they would do a preview, which is a lot of money just for us, and they wouldn't get the results. And uh, that was a great tool because then we got to go in and have the whole preview experience and get all the information without having the numbers held over our head. Plus, we had a little preview of our own of how the audience was going to respond. So um, that was a really, really excellent tool. Uh, it's expensive, so it can only be done on a on a larger studio film, and, and they have to be willing to do it. And I think, you know, contracts are evolving uh, organisms, and I think once Barbe had that in his contract, then he could always get it. I'm, I'm not sure how easy it would be for a new filmmaker today to get that. But, but anyway, long answer to the question, I think previews are enormously helpful if uh, a little bit of a double-edged sword.
0: I guess it's funny because When I think about, you know, when I first started getting into the industry, everyone was always like, I hate previews, I hate previews, I hate previews. (laughs) Um, And I feel like that was just sort of something we all said to each other, because the more editors I've talked to, they've all said, yeah, they can can be a double-edged sword, but they're actually really helpful, or they Mm -hmm. actually give us information that, you know gives us a fresh perspective. So, I feel like we just like complaining about (laughs) previews. (laughs) I know, right? Sort of like the NLEs. We like to complain and pick one, but really, at the end of the day, we'll use any of the systems. (laughs) Right. Now, sometimes, you know, exposition is a necessary evil in the film. So, I'm wondering how you, when you're sort of saddled with a scene that's heavily expositional, how do you tackle editing that. When I, I was look, researching, I saw what you did with Boys Don't Cry at the start, uh-huh. um, and how you cleaned up the exposition there and made it more exciting and engaging. So I'm wondering, when you see this exposition, what's your, what's your thought process, how do you start tackling that scene?
1: You know, Boys Don't Cry is a great example, and we also did a similar thing on The Believer, which is, you know, in, is to build a title sequence because the title sequence takes you out of the obligations of time and space. One scene doesn't have to logically lead to the next. You can really jump around. And what we did with Boys Don't Cry is we built that title sequence so that we could take the key expository scenes and only the parts of those scenes where the information was essential for the film to work and drop those into a title sequence so you could just jump through. And it it, it feels completely natural uh, and I think it leads the audience through. They get the information. They're happy that we're moving through it quickly and, and not dragging out these scenes. You know, there were three or four, you probably don't know, but there were three or four scenes that preceded actually where we started that title sequence that were Hillary in a bad wig before before she had the haircut and became Brandon when she, when she was Tina. And those scenes were just, you know, they were deadly. I mean, the wig was, was really, really bad. And... I mean, Hillary was good, but the scenes were pretty deadly in terms of a way to, you know, they were not a good way to start a movie, you know, they weren't exciting. They weren't engaging. You know, they were expository. They kind of set up, here's what this this uh, troubled young woman was doing. And, and I Kim and I just one day said, the movie begins, the story begins when Tina becomes Brandon. It begins with a haircut. So that's what we did. We The first shot of the movie is the haircut. And then... Brandon goes the first night as a boy to the skating rink. And it's a really beautiful and exciting scene. And I believe that the audience enjoys it as much as Brandon does. It's exhilarating. It's, you know, Brandon is ebullient and we're ebullient with him. So, uh, and then we, we zip through the rest of the exposition until we drop down into the movie. At one point at the studio's request, we cut out that skating scene. And just started right off with, with Brandon meeting Candace, right, in, right into the, you know, the darker turn of the story. And it was excruciating to watch the movie. I mean, losing that one moment of joy at the beginning made everything else that followed just agonizing to, to sit through. Uh, and they saw that immediately. I mean the next morning Michael Summel rushed in the door of the editing room and said, you know, put that scene back. But they tried it once and you know, it's 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 viable to try it and it was amazing to me how taking one scene out just made the movie so dark that it was hard. It was really hard to watch. I mean the people who were in that audience liked the movie. You know, said oh, well it's a good movie but god it's impossible to to watch.
0: It's uh you're you have to work through it cuz it's a it's heavy. <laughs> it's just
1: It is. Yeah, you need a little you need to have you need to say, "Oh, this is He's doing something really uh, ballsy, and it's fun. And, and he's having fun, and I'm having fun, and there's this great music, and he's skating, and, you know, then you can slowly start to pull the rug out from under him. But, but you really need that scene at the beginning.
0: Now, I have one last question that i like to ask all the editors that I interview, uh-huh. uh, and that's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh. <laughs>
1: Gosh, that's a hard one because um, guilty pleasure film to watch. Because, you know, the one that probably is my greatest inspiration, and it isn't really the answer to your question because it's not a guilty pleasure, but I would say The Conformist uh, and Apocalypse Now are my two greatest uh, kind of inspirations uh, when I was very young.
0: What well, What was it about them?
1: The Conformist was the way that he manipulated time and space in a way, in, in a fashion that had not yet been done in a movie, so that I had to watch it, and I think most people had this reaction three times before I fully understood the story and 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 how you pieced it together in in linear time and 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 what the character was thinking because by by jumbling the time it was really built by jumbling the time he built it along the emotional through line of the character, but the character was a cipher, so you're constantly trying to divine what uh, Clarice is is. Is thinking and what these things mean to him and why he's behaving the way he does, and, and then Bertolucci moves you to another point in time and space, and it it answers a question, but it does it in an oblique way. You really have to think about that movie. I mean, now you know it's not quite so so remarkable, but then um, it really, really was, you know, and and in the in same way, the same way, you know, Apocalypse Now had that. It, it was a little more linear, but again, it was it was the main character was such a cipher. Uh, and if you see Apocalypse Now Redux, which is you know where they put a lot of scenes back in, it's really a testament to good editing because those scenes that they put back in in Apocalypse Now Redux ruin the movie, completely ruin the movie. So the fact that someone or all of them had the idea to take them out in the original cut of the movie makes it so much better. The, the Willard character in Redux you see him laughing. You see him stealing the surfboard. You you see way too much of him as just kind of a normal guy, whereas in the original film, he's such a ghoul, and you don't know anything about him. You have a voiceover narration, and you see these kind of blank-faced uh, images of him looking at pictures, and you, you don't really know what he's planning. And he doesn't laugh, and he doesn't steal the surfboard, and he doesn't play pranks. Uh, he's a really... You don't know who he is, but you know he's bad news. You don't know who he is, you know, inside out. So, I didn't answer your question because I can't think of a guilty pleasure right it's,
0: now. I'm pretty, you know what, originally I was like, oh yeah, it's, you know, that one that you see on TV, but so many people have that film that they just love that they're like, yeah, that's my guilty pleasure because I'll watch it no matter what. So I'm pretty open to to any of them. And The Conformist, I'm, I haven't seen, so now I'm excited to see it.
1: Oh, yeah, you have to watch it. It's amazing. It's just amazing.
0: Well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Uh,
1: yeah, it's a pleasure.
0: Pleasure talking to you. So that was my interview with Lee Percy. I'd like to thank Lee for taking the time to allow me to interview him. If you want to hear more of these interviews, go to aotg.com slash cutting room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.